Father, we come now and bow our hearts before you, and we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, open up our minds to listen, to understand, but Lord, open up our hearts that we might believe, and by believing that we may love. Lord, we ask that you would come and visit us in a special way, and allow this time to bear fruit for your kingdom, we ask now in Christ's name, amen. Last Sunday, we started a short series called A New Day, A New Life, inspired by none other than Michael Bublé himself. I thought we needed to jazz up a series title from time to time. But really, the goal is to prepare us as we think ahead to 2016. I know it's already here, but really to think ahead to 2016 and really get a good start, right? Because some of us, were still in 2017. At least I am. Like, I know we're in 2018, but I still function like I'm still in 2017. And maybe for some of you, as you think about this new year, you're sort of caught off guard. Are you? Anyone like that? I, I feel like that every year. Um, and the question that I want to ask tonight and try to answer as we look into this text is, how do we walk in the promises of God in 2018 when we're still trying to heal from 2017? For those of us, maybe for some of us, 2017 was great. I mean, it was basically a highlight reel. One after another, we couldn't have asked for anything better. But not so much for others of us. And even as we sort of limp to the finish line, if you will, we got 2018 awaiting us whether we're ready to start or not. For those of us, we've been here so long that we're so jaded. It's like, oh, another year, forget hope, forget New Year resolutions, forget everything. I think there's a better way to enter into 2018, and Paul, I think, has something to say for that. So let's listen in and see what he has to say. Reed Wilson, an author and a psychologist, wrote a book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head, the new way to overcome anxiety and worry. And in it, he talks about the physical and psychological benefits of discomfort. And he uses cobblestone streets as an example. He goes on to say that research shows that people who live and walk on cobblestone streets have improved sense of balance, an improved cardiovascular system, and all-around improved health. When you walk on bumpy and uneven cobblestone streets, he goes on to say, our brains are engaged. Our minds are alert, constantly adjusting to the erratic ground beneath our feet. Our cardiovascular system is making similar adjustments, changing the way it pumps blood through our bodies. And he goes on to say that really for all of these small reasons that we're not aware of, we're much better because of the discomfort we feel on cobblestone streets. And what's true of cobblestone streets is true of life. Because God ordains suffering for his good purpose and for our glory, which is Christ in us. And how does Jesus accomplish that? There are two things we want to talk about tonight. First, through severe mercy. 
God shows us severe mercy. I don't know if you were paying attention as the scripture was being read, but you get the sense that Apostle Paul is not very good at boasting about himself. Clearly, this is his first time. He goes on to say, I know a man, right? We have a friend that we're asking on behalf of. Come on, Paul, we all know it's you, right? On behalf of this man, I will boast. But surely I will not boast about myself. I could go about boasting about myself and it'll be okay because they're all true, but I won't do that. And then after he goes on to boasting about all this, he says in verse 11, I've been a fool. You forced me to it. If you're a Disney Rapunzel fan, you you remember that scene where Rapunzel first comes out of her tower? And she runs around the field and she says, greatest day ever. And then she says, what have I done? My mom is going to kill me. And that's sort of the Paul I imagine here in 2 Corinthians 12. So what's going on here? Paul defends his apostleship to the Corinthian believers. You see, there were false teachers who were claiming authority over Paul himself. They were slandering his name, questioning his teaching, and and basically trying to hijack his ministry. And to protect the church from false teachers, Paul shares about a vision he had 14 years ago. Look, he's an apostle. He went through a lot, including the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Yet Paul says, this one, this one, takes the cake. In it, he says he was caught up to third heaven, basically to the very presence of God. And there he saw and heard things that cannot be shared. But to keep him humble, verse 7 says, God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him. Other translations say torment, to deflate, to discourage, to disparage him. And we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh is because Paul doesn't bother telling us. But that has not stopped theologians from guessing. Everything from a physical ailment, persecution for his faith, to burden of ministry. And the list actually goes on and on and on, right? But whatever it was, it tormented him so much so that three times he prayed, Lord, remove it from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You and I, we aren't apostles, but we know a thing or two about discouragement and disappointment, don't we? The ambiguity of Paul's thorn in the flesh makes it easy for us to read ourselves into this story. An unexpected personal struggle, perhaps, an ongoing conflict with your boss, dissatisfied and feeling stuck at work, chronic illness with no expiration date, maybe a broken relationship. And you don't have to be a Christian to know a thing or two about discouragement. When it comes to the thorn in the flesh, Christians and non-Christians are old hands. We know that life can often throw us a curveball and we find ourselves in a very difficult place 
a commonplace. And the Christian gospel says Jesus is no stranger to our struggles. In fact, the Bible describes him as a man of sorrow. And on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he experienced rejection and abandonment from God the Father so that you and I would never have to. And by placing our faith in him, we find forgiveness, acceptance, and love as sons and daughters once and for all. And this is a Christian message, the hope, the gospel that the Bible holds before us. And maybe for some of you, it's still not good enough. You look back at 2017 and you have questions and you, have, you want answers. In light of all that you've experienced, you ask why, 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 only to receive silence. I think pastor and author Tim Keller is helpful here. He says, when we look back at the cross, we may not know all the reasons why we suffer, but we certainly know all the reasons why not. Meaning, when we look to the cross in light of all the pain and suffering that we have gone through or we are going through, it is not because God does not know and it is not because God does not care. You see, God allows difficulty in our life for a very, very good reason. And Paul tells us why. God shows us severe mercy in order to humble us. Now, why is humility so important? You see, humility is a necessary precondition, a key that unlocks God's grace for us. As long as you approach God out of pride and stand on your own merit to say, I deserve to be here, the Bible says God opposes you. But when we come in the name of Christ, in utter humility to say, I don't deserve to be here. God gives grace to you. You see, only when our hearts are bowed before Christ can we begin to experience everything he promises to be and do. You see, if God were to bless us when we come standing on our own merit, then we receive the glory. I've done it. Of course, he's got to reward me. No, God refuses to share his glory with us. But when we come humble, and he blesses us, and that's why God gives us severe mercy to humble us, so that we would be ready to receive himself as he pours himself upon us. But here's the thing about severe mercy. It's severe nonetheless. It's hard. It's difficult. And Paul reminds us that even in those moments when the hand of the Lord is heavy upon us, when we are living through the severe mercy of God, that he does not stand off at a distance 
but he is near and he shows us grace, which is our second point, sufficient grace. Let's read these words one more time, beginning with verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I mean, if we really believe what we just heard, I think our faith would be drastically different, don't you? This week, as I was preparing for this message, I, I read and reread those words, reflecting upon how my life would be different if I really believed this to be true. For one, I, I, if I really believed in the sufficiency of His grace and the power made perfect in weakness, I would never start a day without first seeking His grace for me. No matter how busy, how crazy things get. And people ask, what's it like raising four kids and having them in three different schools? I, I, I've shared with some of you, it's like American Ninja. You, you've seen that show, right? You know, you, you start at the, that line and you got to jump through all kinds of crazy, crazy obstacles. And when you get to the finish line and you press that red button, you can finally exhale because now you can start your day. <laughs> Getting kids ready, dressed. And I don't understand why every morning we fight about socks and shoes as if these things were novelties. You, you know you're supposed to wear socks, correct? Like, then why do you fight me every single morning? But even with all the crazy things that go on in the morning, if I really believe that his grace for me is sufficient, I would seek his grace. I would make it a point to get in the Word and pray because I can't do it alone. But so often, in all the subtle ways, I tell God that I can. I don't need you. I don't need your grace. I got a car that could take me from point A to point B. I got a mind that sort of works sometimes. Contribute. How about you? How would it change you? I wouldn't be anxious about anything. But my heart, I think, and life would be marked by peace. Knowing that he's got my back. And even in my weakness, his power is made perfect. I wouldn't idolize efficiency and productivity. Those things wouldn't drive me. But joy would. How about you? How would these truths change your life and some of the inner workings of your own heart? Well, there are two ways that God's grace is sufficient for us. First, His grace sustains us. His grace sustains us. You see, when God shows a severe mercy, as I said, He doesn't simply forget about us. It's not one of those slow cookers where you set the time, go off for six hours and come back in hopes that somehow the house didn't burn down. No, he is actually with us. That's what we celebrated in Advent. God, Emmanuel, he's with us. He gives us grace to endure. 
And it's evident in Paul's testimony. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, this is exactly what Paul says. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, and on and on and on. Why? Because God's grace is there, and he helps us to endure. You see, God doesn't always change our circumstance. He may, but he may not. But he always gives us strength to endure. But see, we forget this. We forget that God has a purpose, that he puts us in the, the pressure cooker called severe mercy so that he could, as we'll talk about later, refine us and all that. But because we forget about that and we forget that God's grace is there to help us endure, we are looking for that easy button. A quick exit. See, we're way too committed to comfort from lazy chairs to remote controls. And if you're old enough, the clapper, right? I mean, we are overcommitted to comfort. We, we avoid discomfort like a plague. But I think God wants us there for a reason, as we will see. Of course, this doesn't mean that we can't seek counsel from others and sometimes when necessary, remove ourselves from a very from harmful situations. We need to. But I think too often we're looking for a way out. We don't endure. We don't let God finish his work. See, more difficult than the thorn in the flesh, perhaps, is the meaning we often attach to it. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. You see, we never take suffering at face value. We are meaning-making creatures, and we're always reading into things. And some of you, when you look at your relationship status, you conclude that you are worthless. Some of you, you look at your employment situation and you say, God doesn't care. And some of you, you look at your difficult marriage and you say, God must really hate me. You see, we read into the circumstances and it's the words that kill us. Because we repeat those stories in our head over and over and over again. And before long, we indoctrinate ourselves in that. And we, we believe that. And we live out of that. This is nothing new. Remember Genesis chapter 3? Did God really say, oh, he must not care about you? He must not love you. Satan, in that sense, is a one-trick pony. He's at it again. He's attaching these messages to the circumstances we find ourselves in. But when we are tempted to believe in Satan's lies, we have to stop and wrestle with God's truth, his promise, 
And let the words, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let those words wash over us over and over and over again until we believe. And there's hope and joy. I get it. Often life is very difficult, very challenging. I get that. But do you believe that in the midst of everything you're going through, that his grace really is sufficient for you? Do you? I know I don't always believe that. See, in order for the, the, those promises to really work, take effect in our hearts, to change us, our attitudes, our outlook, to change our emotion from despair to joy. We can't just sit there and, and hope that his work, word does the work. No, these things don't happen automatically. We have to pray. We have to pray. You see, prayer is many things. One of them is man massaging these very promises into our hearts until we believe. And maybe this is a good New Year resolution for us to carve out time to pray. And not just to pay lip service to God and check something off, but to really grow in the discipline of prayer until it really affects our hearts. Second, his grace not only sustains us, but it transforms us. It transforms us. You see, God ordained suffering for his good purpose, and we see this throughout the Bible from Joseph to Job. God uses suffering to accomplish the goal of refining us into the likeness of Christ in his moral character. And we read about that in Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, where Paul says, because we are in Christ and because we are in his grace, we can rejoice. Why, Paul? Because life is a walk in a park? No, because suffering serves a purpose. It produces endurance, character, and eventually hope. Kintsugi is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery, often with this thing mixed with powder, gold, and silver. And rather than just throwing things away, they, they try to restore it. And they don't restore it with other clay-like materials, but they actually use powder, gold, and silver. You may have seen pictures of this floating around on, on the Internet or maybe in a museum. And I, I love the philosophy behind it. You see, rather than trying to hide the flaws or the cracks in this piece of clay or jar, the artist actually highlights them and restores them beautifully. And I think this is exactly what God does in our hearts, in our life. He doesn't simply cover up the broken parts of our lives. No, but he's committed to transforming the very things that we are sometimes ashamed of. 
And he applies grace there. And he's transforming us. And that's why Paul says we're being renewed from glory to glory. Instead of complaining that God again is allowing hardship, struggle, challenges in our life, I wonder if we, in light of these words, start thinking about perhaps the plans that God has for us. Rather than being discouraged because of all the things that didn't go right in 2017, we would, in light of this passage, find hope. And to remind ourselves that God hasn't forgotten about me and God certainly cares. In fact, he allowed these things to happen so that he could transform me into the likeness of Christ. And that we would take that truth and we would enter into 2018, if you haven't already, like me, at least mentally, with great hope that even this year, come what may, God is committed to this very work and he is committed to working out his glory in me and through me in this city so that we begin to reflect the glory of the kingdom to come rather than anger we become patient rather than lust we choose purity instead of indifference we say Lord I want to commit to something in concrete, tangible ways in 2018 and commit to serving this city somehow, whether through partner ministries we have in the church or through organizations that I've heard about here in the city. I want to give my time and effort to engage. I think God will then take that and use it for his glory. So let's, in light of 2018, not despair, not be jaded, but really enter it with hope, knowing that he who is for us is going to carry out this work. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for your severe mercy. We know sometimes it's hard but we know there's a purpose and you are achieving in us glory. And for that, we want to give you thanks. Lord, especially in those times when we can't or choose not to believe, would you show us extra grace to turn our hearts to you in faith so that we might receive fresh grace for this year. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mike. If you have been um, around a child that is crying and having a tough time, one of the questions we immediately ask is, are they hungry? Maybe this is what's going on. Or with ourselves, maybe you have low blood sugar or you just don't do well with not eating and 
you find yourself, the world feels like it's going to end, you eat, and everything seems to get a little bit better. Um, there's the same thing that's happening at this table. Uh, this table is a meal, right? And what you're seeing here is Jesus, the risen Lord, saying, if you come, I will give you what you need to sustain you so you can make it. You know? So you don't have the tantrum, so you don't go down the hole and lose hope. And I'll do that by offering my life to you. That's what these elements represent, his blood and his body. He often asks people, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry and are you thirsty? Uh, if that's you, and you have looked to Christ for your food, come forward and get what you need to sustain you this week as you eat and drink in faith and think about the gospel. So that's what we're doing here. If that's not you, there's still a way for you to participate. And that is, if you're not yet someone that has trusted Christ or had to start a relationship with God through Christ, the meaning of this meal is still there for you to embrace. And that is, will you come to Him to be your soul's all, everything you desire? And we would love to know if you've done that. We'd love to talk with you about that. But it wouldn't be right to come to the table before you've done that. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your commitment to us. We thank You for your determination to feed us today and sustain us today and tomorrow and the next day. We pray the taste of this meal would linger. In Christ's name, amen. Jesus, last night with his disciples, as they're celebrating the Passover meal, he transforms it and says, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Likewise, he took the cup that they would drink from and said, and this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. So we'll come to the table now. I'm going to ask... Elder David Raymer to help me serve, and our servers will come forward as well. There's directions in the bulletin if you're wondering how we do this, or you can just follow the crowd.